Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast with me, Vas Christodoulou, and an all-star cast of writers, thinkers, broadcasters, scholars and artists. This week's guest is a man who, for our British listeners at least, requires no introduction. For the last 33 years, John Humphreys has held politicians to account as the host of our most popular news programme, Radio 4's Today. Now, on the eve of John's retirement from the BBC, Matthew Stadlin, a man who is himself no stranger to asking tough questions of those in authority, sat down with John to explore what he's learned from a lifetime at the forefront of current affairs. John, I've spent the majority of my career as an interviewer, so my first question to you is what is the key to a good interview? Curiosity, in a word, that'll do it. You um, you need to put yourself in the position of the listener or viewer or reader and ask yourself what a curious listener would want to know and try to ask those questions. And if you don't get an answer, assuming it's a politician, and that is frequently the case, then you ask it again. Maybe you try to find a different way of asking it, but, but at, the, at the heart of it is curiosity. Journalism is all about curiosity. And how do you therefore judge the sort of curiosity of your listener? Well, you can't be precise, obviously. You've got a lot of listeners, and they all, they're all interested in different things. In the end, and this will probably sound amazingly egotistical, but it's absolutely not meant to be. If you are not yourself inherently, instinctively, habitually curious about everything around you, and I mean everything, I don't mean just God help us politics or God help us even more Brexit. If you're not curious about how the world works, how human beings function, how the natural world survives, then you shouldn't be doing the job. In fact, I'd go further. You can't do the job because you'll be sussed out. So in my case, because um, I have an enormous work rate, but I'm inherently lazy, that's to say (laughs) I would prefer... (laughs) I, I, I would prefer doing things that I want to do rather than doing things that I have to do. I suppose I'm not unique in that. Um, if, if you haven't got that genuine, that, that, that genuine curiosity, you, you, you will be sussed out. And, and I, I know what I want to know. Of course, I don't know what every one of the, whatever it is, nearly 7 million listeners to the Today program want to know. But you can't make that judgment. Of course, you can't. But what you can say to yourself, in fact, you, you don't actually say anything to yourself. You just do the interview. And I, I like to think, clearly, th- there's a different sort of interviews. There are different sorts of interviews, lots and lots and lots of different sorts of different categories of interviews. But the real interviews, the interviews 
that matter to me most are those where I approach them with a genuine sense of wanting to hear what that person or people, what they want to say. Uh, if I don't, and it's pretty rare that I don't, because you can usually find something that interests you about whatever the subject is you're discussing. If I don't, it's not going to be a good interview. If the, audi the audience has, well, speaking as somebody who also listens to and, and occasionally, very occasionally, in my case, watches uh, radio and television interviews, if I, I get the sense that the interviewer is even remotely bored and is struggling to find something to say because they're genuinely not interested, then I switch off. Do you set out very deliberately to get headlines when you're sitting in the Today programme hot seat? No, no, I don't. Uh, I would be, it would be dishonest of me if I didn't say it's great when you do get headlines. And it's fair to say that, let me substitute for headlines, news lines. It's fair to say that on a programme like today, you tend to be judged. At least this is what we assume. I think it's wrong for reasons I'll explain in a second. But there is an assumption on the programme that when you're interviewing politicians, and, and let's assume that we're talking about politicians for the moment because there is obviously a massive difference between a political interview and any other interview. There are some similarities, of course, but there is a fundamental difference. If you fail to get any sort of news line out of the interview, the assumption is on the programme, generally speaking, and always has been, I think, you haven't succeeded. I think that is profoundly wrong. And the longer I've been presenting the Today programme, the more I have come to believe that. Of course, if you finish the interview and what your interviewee said, what the politician said, is all over social media and God knows what, you open the, pick up the Times the following morning, it's the front page lead in the Times, it's the only interview everybody is talking about, it results in a change of government and saving the world and all that, great. That's rather nice. It's never happened to me, but, but it would be rather nice if it did. But if you get some sort of news line, that's good. You, it, it, the assumption is you've done your job. I don't think we should be judged on that basis. We are a news programme, obviously, so therefore we have to be in tune with we have to have a pretty rough idea of what the audience knows and what the politician wants to say and then we have to try and match the two really we have to we have to um find that uh find the connection or create the connection perhaps that's a better way of putting it between the listener and the politician so we have to try and we have to decide what we think the, the, the audience wants to know and what the politician wants to say. Now, the two are not always going to be the same, quite clearly. So we have to be able to spot the difference, as it were. Um, and if we succeed in doing that, if we succeed in giving the audience the information that they want, or indeed, and this will sound arrogant, I don't mean it in that sense, they didn't really know that they wanted but you, you, you're unable to unravel something in a way that, that sheds greater light on it. Then we've done our job. Our job, two couple of obvious um, tasks that we have to fulfill during that interview. Um, above all, I suppose, we have to hold the politician to account. I mean, the job of it, we, we have a, a unique privilege on a programme like today 
we can talk to everybody from the Prime Minister down. The, the listener can't do that. We have to do that on their behalf and ask the, ask the politician, the people in power, um, questions that the, the audience would like to ask if they were able to do so. Um, sometimes we get answers, sometimes we don't. That's the first job. But the second job, and it's that you can't separate these, of course, because they occupy pretty much the same pedestal, I suppose, most of the time. But but the, but the, the second function is to elucidate. It's a posh word for, for trying to say you, 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 you leave the audience knowing or understanding a bit more about whatever it is you're talking about. Brexit is a classic example of that. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how many people during the course of the last several months um, have actually got a grip on what the Malthouse Convention is or the Brady Amendment is. I suspect 99.999 out of 100 wouldn't have the first idea. And why the hell should they? So it's our job to get through all that treacle, um, to separate the stuff they don't need to know, and they don't need to know what the Maltese can, whatever. And how much homework do you do, John, a lot. to make sure that you understand what the Maltese agreement <laughs> is? <laughs> well, two separate, yes, two separate parts of the question. How much homework do I do a lot? Do I end up with an intimate and profound knowledge of, 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 of the, uh, the Maltese compromise or whatever it is? Um, no. Be perfectly honest. I, I probably know a bit more than the average listener because I've gone to the trouble of reading all the newspaper columns and God knows what else. Um, and if you read the best columnists in the best newspapers, whoever they may be, it's a matter of opinion, obviously, um, you will have a, a, a fair idea. And obviously, we also, people like me, also have the privilege of being able to talk to people like Laura Kunzberg, who does know what the Brady Amendment is and can tell you in great detail what the Brady Amendment is. But, but I don't regard the, the I don't regard the interview as being that as being as, as sending people away, saying to themselves as they get on their train to go to work or whatever. Ah, now I understand the break because it's not necessary for them to understand the break because these things come and go all the time. That's part of the minutiae. What one tries to do, what I try to do, and don't always succeed, don't often succeed, is is to give the audience a. a broader sense of what the issues are and what they might mean um, given X, Y, and Z. But you uh, do have to understand the detail, of course. In order not the to detail. Get, no, I don't, think, I don't think you have to understand the You have detail. to understand it much better than most yeah, of us yeah, yeah, do of in order to ask the right sorts of questions. Of course. And this is not a loaded question, but do you ever find yourself all at sea? Or caught out. Of course. Or do you ever have that sense of panic, even after presenting the Today programme for over 30 years? Do you think, oh my God. Of course I do. I've never done an interview, at least. Now that's a bit sweeping, all right. I seldom do a political interview, and I keep putting the word political in because we are talking here specifically. I'm very, very happy when I'm talking to a scientist about global warming or whatever it happens to be. I'm very, very happy to say, do you know what? I don't understand a word you're saying. Can you try and put that in the other, because I've always been puzzled by that. Now, you can't do that with a politician. Well, you could, but it would open you to a degree of ridicule. Oh, John, well, but if, if, if you don't understand it, then I'm not sure. You know, you've got to be a wee bit careful about it. Now, I have never done an interview, or seldom ever done an interview with a politician, at the end of which I said, yeah, got it, I've nailed that. Um, I, was, I was right on top of it. I was ahead of him, her, 
um, at every stage throughout the interview, uh, really held their feet to the fire um, and, you know, job done. Almost never, almost never succeed in doing that. And there are many times during the course of an interview where the politician will say something and I'll think, my God, what's he talking about? Jesus, I missed something there. Now, sometimes it will not be my fault because it is so obscure and the politician is obviously doing this deliberately, is dredging something up which he knows or they know will, will thoroughly confuse you and it's actually irrelevant and you've got to be able to spot when it's irrelevant and when it's not. And it is also but, their brief, of course. And it's their brief. I mean, that, that and yes, you, you, you put your finger on it. I mean, one, one has to bear in mind, if you're talking to the Charles of the Exchequer, for instance, he spends his, we haven't had a woman yet, so I can say he can't, his, in that job, uh, he spends his entire life being briefed or talking to people who know everything he used to know about the economy and how it works and why it doesn't work, etc., 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 etc. I spend uh, whatever it might be. I spend a couple of hours with luck, and that is very, very rare to have a couple of hours to be briefed in or to brief oneself in, but I spend a very small portion of my day doing that, if any. That is his full-time job. Um, he is, of course, going to know more than I am. And but how often, because this is a symbiotic process, they want something out of the interview, the politicians, you want something out of the interview. How it might often, be the same thing. It could be the same thing, but how often does the interview end on today and you feel they've said something that they didn't really want to say. In other words, you've scraped beneath the veneer or the PR Sometimes. or the message so, that they wanted to put it, out there. It, it happens. Um, it happens. Not, I think, very often. Of course, you can never be quite sure because clearly they're not going to say to you afterwards, at least occasionally, vanishingly, vanishingly rarely, they will say afterwards, if one has a chance to talk to them, and mostly one doesn't. But sometimes they say, oh, no, I didn't really mean to say that. But that is, that is vanishingly rare. Um, and, and it rests on you having the interview, me having a relationship with that politician so that there's an element of trust. And I know what you're going to say next, which is, um, are you handing glove with these characters? You know, do you have a little chat beforehand and all that? And do you become mates? I imagine not. No, I don't. I don't. I don't I, imagine I, you have cabinet ministers or, or, or shadow cabinet ministers round your kitchen table. We're sitting in your kitchen now. Do you? I can think of, and I can name him because he's dead, long since dead, uh, Mo Molan. For instance, has sat around this very kitchen table. Um, uh, former because, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Labour, under Blair. Um, because we got to be friends. Um, for reasons I can't now remember, before she became frightfully powerful, and and we stayed friends, um, and she was she was good fun. Um, I don't think, and I think I can say this, I don't think it ever had made the slightest impact on the interviews that I did with her as Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Um, but she is. Uh, and, I, and there are lots of other politicians that I have got on well with, and one or two I've had occasional lunches with. I could literally, though, put aside Mo, who, as I say, I got to know quite well, um, put aside Mo, I could count, I could count literally on the fingers of two hands the number of lunches I've had with politicians. I don't do it. And this and that's in 30 odd years. leads us to the wider and very important question as a public service broadcaster of impartiality. How do you feel you've got on over the past three decades at today? I, Tony Blair said to me 
a very long time ago. I think he was still a backbench MP at the time. Um, yeah, I, I think he was trying to flatter me, but whatever, it doesn't matter. But he said, you should have been a barrister. And, uh, I can see it. Uh, well, <laughs> well, <laughs> well. No, I'm the son of a barrister. I can tell you. Oh, I can, you yes, really? I could imagine oh, you doing it. How interesting. Well, a, I'm, I'm almost certainly. I've never passed the exams. That's, that would be the first problem. But, but where there is a similarity, and, how the, and I think this, I, I hope this answers your question more or less, um, is that the barrister. I was going to say doesn't care that you you can pro- provide the the, the, the the right word rather than doesn't care. The barrister is not concerned, let's assume it's a criminal barrister, whether, and let's assume it's a male, whether his client is innocent or guilty. He will do his damnedest to present the client's case. Yeah. True. Go on. Yeah. Um, I don't give a damn whether the politician's argument is right or wrong. For the, for the purpose of the interview, I do not have a view on that. Um, it helps a bit, I think, that I am not ideological. I've voted for pretty much all the political parties in, in my life uh, over, the, over the many years uh, I've had a vote. Um, so I'm not ideological. Um, obviously, I will have views about all the main political issues. Um, I'd be a freak if I didn't. Um, you simply... Well, I don't know how many we can not have views, but, 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 most importantly, I do not take them to the interview table, to the studio. I leave them at the door of the studio. But are you given more latitude more generally when it comes to foreign affairs? Let's say the elections in the US. No, I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. In fact, I worry occasionally um, and have since Trump became president, that we occasionally, as it were, um, let our slip show. Um, We have no right, it seems to me, to make a judgment about Donald Trump. He is the president of the United States. Um, And I think this is probably setting the bar a bit high, but but I think we should probably treat him in the same way that we would treat a prime minister of this country. A prime minister of this country said some of the things that Donald Trump has said, we would obviously take him to task for it, um, but we should apply exactly the same rules, I think. Now, if, I don't know, let's take an absurd example, if, if I, I would like to think that um, if uh, Stalin... Uh, being, being a, a, a youngster interviewing Stalin or something, I'd like to think that I would have taken a fairly robust view about his habit of murdering lots of people. But that's such a silly example. It's, it's, but you've hit, your, you've, you've hit on something very important here, I think, John, which is that Donald Trump is the democratically elected president precisely. of the United States, but he has also said, for example, something deeply Islamophobic, mooting the idea that there should be a, an almost total ban of Muslims from the United States for a while. Now, how does the BBC, how do you as a BBC interviewer and journalist cope with those two things? Well, Someone you, who is yeah. democratically elected is capable of peddling hate and fear. Well, those are your words. And um, as, uh, <laughs> as a long-term employee of the BBC, as somebody who represents the BBC on the airwaves, I would not use those expressions that you used. I would not say... 
unless it were in quotes and I were quoting somebody else, which I'd be very happy to do, peddling hate and fear. But you might put that to him where you to interview him. Absolutely, I would. Of course I would. And there is a huge difference. And as a son of a barrister, you know this. And anyway, as an interviewer yourself, you know this. There is a huge difference. You can put anything to anybody, pretty much, so long as there's some evidence for it. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say to, to a, um, uh, a distinguished or indeed a non-distinguished politician, is it true that you're a paedophile? If I had no evidence for the fact, or nobody had made the claim that that person was a paedophile, of course. I mean, just, that's such an obvious thing to say. It is not worth saying. But, but of course you can put to people um, all the charges, unless they are patently absurd, that um, have been made publicly. Uh, you, you have, I mean, you, you, you just part of anything else, just on the basis that you have to give them the chance to deny it. You and I have sat around this very table before, I think in 2014, when I was interviewing you for a double-page spread in the Radio Times, and you said very candidly then that you felt that the BBC had, in the past, and I think you put it in the past tense, shown a, an insufficient scepticism of the pro-European case. Now, in recent months, you have stood accused by your detractors or by people who who simply listen to you on the Today program, of, or those of, who take a different view, of, of, those who take a different, perhaps of showing pro Brexit bias. How do you defend yourself you against such an allegation? You must be aware of it. I do, of course, I. Well, I, 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 I do not use Twitter, so I don't read the the stuff. Um, and much of this is on Twitter, and much of it is on Twitter. It's complete. Cobblers, of course, absolute rubbish. Anybody who listens, to, if, if you took a dozen of my interviews with pro-Brexiteers and, uh, and 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 Remainers, um, you would find the same level of scepticism. No, I have absolutely no doubt about that. I mean, I know what I feel about it, of course, and I know how I voted in the referendum. Um, and, but you're not going to yeah, tell me, of course. Uh, of course I'm not, because, <laughs> because otherwise people would then be able to say, oh, right, so now we know. And then they, they would judge everything I did through the prism of that. So, of course, I'm not going to tell you. And will tell you hold you, to well, that? Tell you when I leave the BBC. Well, I was going to say, will you, well, t- will you tell us after well, you leave yeah, the BBC? Why, why should I not? Because I shall the, 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 the BBC is a public corporation. People are entitled to expect, people like me who work for it, that we will be as impartial as it is proper to be, possible to be. We were not. I mean, Lord Reith famously said, and it is as it stands today as it stood not far off a century ago, the BBC is required to be impartial except as between good and evil. Now, I was based in um, Southern Africa, for many years, I was not impartial as between apartheid and a democratic system. I regarded apartheid as an abomination. Which begs the question, what happens if we get fascism in this country, John? Well, I would like to think that the BBC would deal with it in the same way that I dealt with or we dealt with apartheid when it was a, a live issue. Even if I mean, the leader, the fascist leader, were to have been democratically elected? Well, if, if, a, if a truly fascist leader were to be elected in this country, I rather doubt that the BBC, in its present form, would continue to exist. Very nicely because dodged. The That's very, a very political no, answer. It's, it's, but it's the truth. <laughs> the first thing, a truly fascist... If Adolf Hitler came to power in this country, it's fairly unlikely, and I think we have precedent for this, not just Adolf Hitler, but one or two the characters from the past, um, they would not allow an independent 
a broadcasting uh, the corporation with independent uh, views, impartial views, to broadcast. That's the first thing they do would be to close us down. I'm just obviously. going to take you back momentarily to something you said a few minutes ago, which is that you wouldn't, you didn't think, have passed the bar exams to become a barrister, which no. is very modest of you, typically modest. But I think a lot of no, people, a lot of, a lot of people listening would be surprised if they don't know your biography. But I think you left school at the age of 15. I did. You were the son of a hairdresser. Your mother was a hairdresser. I think your father was a self-employed French polisher. Yes, he was a one-man band, yes. He was a stroppy bugger. How did you get to where you got to? And has your lack of a university education in any way held you back in your own mind? Clearly not in any of our minds. I don't know is the honest answer to that. Um, I, it it, it um, cemented more firmly the chip on my shoulder because I, uh, I, uh, the, the people, people talk about the nobility of poverty. It's complete crap, of course. There is no nobility in poverty. It's degrading. Um, and um, and we were poor at times. We were very poor. Um, this was in Wales. This was in Wales. Yeah, uh, I was born in a place called Splot, which um, yes, which looked rather like it sounds in Cardiff. And, in Cardiff, yeah. Uh, and my father was, as you say, a self-employed French polisher. Sometimes had work, sometimes didn't. Sometimes got paid by the rich people for whom he worked. Sometimes didn't. And I think it's fair to say that he was. Um, um, he was a stroppy um, <laughs> individual who I was thinking of other nouns, none of, none of which would have, would have quite fitted him, who uh, he disliked authority in every, in every form. He, he, he was opposed to, I mean, when he went to, if he knocked on the door of a grand house to go and polish their French piano, their, their, their piano or something, and the, the butler showed him, because there were lots of servants in those days, showed him the servant's entrance. He would walk away and wouldn't do the job, even though he needed the money because he wasn't. He didn't regard himself as anybody's servant and so on. So he had a chip on his shoulder. I inherited the chip. And, uh, um, Although I have to say you are thoroughly nice in person and much, much nicer oh, than some people might expect from, writing. From, your, <laughs> from your bulldog interviews on the radio. <laughs> well, well, I don't think it follows that... I mean, Hopefully, <laughs> do I can't answer that question. It was a question, um, but but uh, I, would it have made it if I gone to university? I'd probably not. Um, I, I I don't know. Look, I wouldn't have done what I was able to do, which was start working on the Panath Times at the age of fifteen, and therefore, by the time I'd done a couple of years on that and a couple of years on another slightly bigger newspaper, by the time all these tosses were—I mean, excuse me—all the all these undergraduates, I'm slipping back into my. Um, you're speaking to me, John. I could, quite so. I'm aware of that. I was aware of that. Had I been speaking to you 60 years ago, I'd have wanted to strangle you with your university <laughs> scarf because that was how jealous I, I, I was. I would have been. It. But, but this is but, somehow informed your capacity, yes, I think, does. for taking on authority, no, it, hasn't it it? It, it? it does. It does. It does. I, I, I start from the position that authority... <laughs> I think from the position that authorities probably got it wrong. And, 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 and occasionally, uh, well, not occasionally, quite often, big things happen. Um, the, 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 the absolutely classic example, obviously, is Abervan. Um, you were the first reporter on the scene, I think. I was. And, and incidentally, you asked me how I managed to do so well, given that I didn't do X, Y, and Z. The simple one word I answer that is luck. I mean, it really is being in the right place at the right time. That's what how journalists get on. And other people's tragedy, of course, in that terrible and, case. And, and that, of D course... Just remind us what happened, very well, briefly. Well, yeah. Um, a coal tip slid down 
the side of the valley um, uh, in, 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 and, and uh, crushed the village of, uh, of Aberfan and, and crushed the school. And the miners obviously heard it and got to the surface immediately and went there. They were still there when I got there, obviously. And they were digging for their children, for their own children. And it was the most unbelievably yeah, impossible to imagine the horror of it, quite impossible. It still lives with you. It's, it's it does. Well, you can't forget something like that. You can't forget that. But you don't need to have lived very long, um, I think, doing the sort of job that I do, and the job of a journalist is to report on things that go wrong most of the time, whether it's a man-made disaster like that or whatever it happens to be, and end up without a sense of often powering injustice. And it's your job not to right the wrongs, God forbid, if only, um, but at least to draw attention to them and ask the questions that need to be asked, which Once is what the job of a journalist is. Returned from South Africa and, and you, you became a, a BBC reporter. You went to America, you reported on the creation of Zimbabwe from... Rhodesia, and then you came back, and in, for the greater part, I think, of the 1980s, you presented the news on BBC One at 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock news, as it was then, yeah. yeah, that's right. Six years, yeah. Having then, towards the end of the 80s, been given this opportunity at Today, did you slip very comfortably into, the, into that radio seat? How, how, quickly, how, very, no. how quickly did you find your, your voice? Oh, I think and it how, took me a How self-conscious time. were you? Oh, it took me a long time. Um, Desperately self-conscious, desperately nervous. And I can remember doing the first program and you know, how the hell I got through the three hours, I don't know. Um, very, very, I find it very difficult. I, I've never done that. I've never done any live radio. Um, pretty much everything, all of my journalism, pretty much had been, obviously some of it was live and, and reading the news is live, but you're reading an article in a nice comfortable studio and you know, that's, that's not the most challenging job I've ever done in my life. Although you were one of the first presenters, I think, along with John Simpson, who I, I, started I to write first, your own I, auto. I, 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 I was the first journalist presenter, as it were, and then John came, yeah. Um, yeah, so yes, but you know, come on, writing, you know, by the time you've stripped out everything else, 25 minute news bulletin, you, you, you read, what, three minutes of half, three and a half minutes, maybe four minutes? I mean, not the most. So it took you a while to become comfortable with It took me a long program. time to get used to it. I think it probably took me a year to have any sense. I don't know how long, but, but it, um, it must have been at least a year to have any sense of. And look, without wishing to sound again too so I am still learning. I mean, you know, the idea that you do the job. And, and then you've cracked it and that's it. Absolutely not the case. I mean, I never do an interview at the end of which I feel, hardly ever do a political interview, certainly, at the end of which I feel, yeah, I got oh, that, yeah, I did, yeah, that's fine, got that, cracked that. No, 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 you have every, every interview you do, almost, silly, of course, if you do a two-minute chat with one of your colleagues, but, but every proper, real interview you do, you learn something from. I really do believe that. You I don't really believe that. Don't get nervous anymore, presumably. Oh yes I do. Do you? Oh gosh. For yes. what? Oh. If if you said to me, you know, you're interviewing I don't know, Chancellor Francis, whatever, leader of the opposition, not much just leader of the opposition, he won't do us. But there we go. I did him once. I did one interview with Jeremy Cole. Um, that, was a, that was it, the one. Um, um, of course you're nervous. I mean, you'd be, you'd be supremely arrogant not to be nervous. I mean, you don't know what he's or she is going to say. So, and you think you're reasonably well informed. 
But you don't know that, and as you pointed out earlier in the discussion, um, you, you can't be sure that you know what you know, they are going to say and how they're going to deal with it. And if they go in a direction that completely throws you, I mean, I, I, I'm not one of those who plans my, or, you know, I don't, I don't plan the interview. I used to do that with, with um, uh, on the record, which I also presented. On the telly, yeah. Yeah, for, for many years. Um, those were long interviews, 40 minutes, sometimes the full hour. Um, and then you've got to plan the thing out very carefully. I don't tend to do that with my interviews on the Today programme. I certainly don't write out a list of questions or anything. So you, you've got to try and keep it in your head. And if they go off in a direction that you really haven't expected, sometimes that's great because you're going, you, you may be discovering something you didn't know. But often you, 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 um, you're struggling to... Um... But for me, one of the challenges of interviewing is holding in your head roughly what you want to get asked at the same time as being reactive, at the same time as yeah. listening very carefully yep. and responding yep. when necessary. So John Snow said to me once that the key to a good interview is to listen yep. and not simply to ask the next pre-prepared oh, question. Oh, God forbid. No, no, that, that's why I don't write them down because the temptation is then to do precisely that. No, and no, how, absolutely not. How absolutely do you build not. a sense of entertainment into it? Do you see ah. the Today programme in any way as entertainment, course, not just news? Of course, of course. Inform, educate, entertain. Yes, wreath again. Are. That's wreath again. That's what we're meant to do. Um, which is not to say that the interview with Charles Chancellor Exchequer the day after the budget has to be a laugh a minute. It doesn't, obviously. Well, it's a struggle a wee bit, wouldn't you, in that case? Um, yeah, but but it, has, it has to hold the audience's attention. It has to engage them. And... and you know, entertain, what do you call it? I mean, line of duty is entertaining, yeah? But in not quite the same way that a stand-up comedian is entertaining. But you are still entertained. Now, what do you mean by entertained? You, I think, Matt, would have to define what you mean by entertained. I mean, I want... It has to be a good listen. It has to be a good uh, listen. Are you aware uh, of a sense of theatre? Do you ever of course. play up to this yes, idea of yourself? As, yes, as the sort of big bad guy who's going to ask the tough oh, question. Ah, mm, that's a slightly different question. Do, do you play up to the... Yes, but there's you, an entertainment, of course there is, between the battle that you have, between you, yourself, and the politician, or Jeremy Paxman, when he was doing it on telly, and the politician, very watchable, very listenable in um, your case. Well, but, but then if you were, look, put yourself at, a, I don't know, a dinner table conversation and, and you're arguing about Brexit. If, if one side of the, um, if, 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 your, if your companions um, both had strong feelings about Brexit one way or the other and, and were absolute whizzes on all the minutiae and they really did know every detail of the Brady Amendment or whatever it happened to be and, and they were exchanging um, detail, you know, anecdote. You, you, you'd be bored, wouldn't you? And you would like it if somebody, if, if, if maybe you were the person who did it, but if, if, if they kind of engaged a wee bit, not necessarily punch each other on the nose, but, but, but got, a bit, got a bit involved and showed that they cared. And, and, you know, there was a wee bit of passion flowing there. And maybe passion is the word. Most, when you're interviewing a politician, by and large, not always true, and sometimes it can be very technical and we have to try to find a way around that. But by and large, you want the audience, I think, to feel that the person you're interviewing cares about what they are talking about and that the person asking the questions also cares. Not in the sense that they're going to present their own personal views, but they care on your behalf. And so they will, if, if, if you get the sense, if the issue you're discussing is something that you know 
either deeply worries the audience or a large part of the audience or makes them very angry, then I think you're entitled to reflect that concern or anger. I think you're entitled to reflect it. You're not entitled to be rude, absolutely not, never, but you are entitled to reflect that passion. Passion, let's use the word passion. Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I suggested earlier there's a difference between how you come across in person and how perhaps you come across sometimes on, on the airwaves, but are you irreducibly yourself, John Humphreys, on air? Or are there two John Humphreys? No, I don't, I don't think there are. I'm argumentative. Um, I mean, and you can be light-touch light on the radio as well, can't you? Of course. Do, do you find turning the corners between heavy and light one of the challenges, not but also one the, of the fun things? Not in the slightest. That's what makes the Today programme yeah. what it is. I mean, for me, the Today programme works when you do the heavyweight interview with whatever the politician is, and, and then three minutes later you're asking somebody, you know, why, why Ed Chogs are spikes or something. And you didn't model yourself on anyone else, Brian Redhead or any of the other people you've worked with? Oh, you can't do that. In the end, somebody, when when I joined the programme and um, after the first, my first, what I consider to be my first disastrous programme, though they obviously, everybody's very nice because they've got to be, they signed you up for bloody years so they have to be nice to you, don't they? And and, and the editor said, oh, it was great, it was great. Um, And I said, but I didn't didn't know what what I should be, and she said it was perfectly simple, perfectly simple, you be yourself. You mentioned a word that hasn't cropped up, interestingly, in the previous 40 minutes or so, and that's the word editor. Mm. What's the relationship like between you as a presenter and your editor? Where does the power reside, in all honesty? uh, Well, I can't give you an an accurate answer because I've served, we use the word as loosely as you wish, I have served eight editors, and they're all different. Every single one of them is different. Um, And with some of them, it's been armed neutrality um, and with others it's been complete meeting of minds it's never complete meeting of minds um, I've got on just about with all of them some of them we've become very close friends completely eight editors eight different relationships bound to be bound to be but you have to accept obviously the presenter has to accept that it is the editor's the boss now that is not to say that if the editor told me to say something in an interview when talking into your ear, which they do occasionally during the course of an interview, they suggested I say something I, I didn't want to say, I wouldn't say it. Um, and then you have the battle later. And then you have the battle later. And there have been times when editors have done things um, of which I have hugely disapproved. And I've, I've resigned many times over the years. <laughs> <laughs> I've always crept back, humiliated and defeated. But um, but but no, occasionally, the way yes, I, I've had a few of those. But is it more John Humphreys? Or is it more the editor when you go into work in the morning? Oh, it's only me. I mean, the the editor, 
is responsible for the content of the program. I have the uh, the presenter has absolutely no influence. Oh, I have stupid to say no influence. Obviously, we'll give our express our opinion. But you haven't changed according to the changes in editorship. Oh no, no, oh no. How could I? I mean, I am me. I mean, you're about to retire. Would no, you? can I correct you? I'm about <laughs> to leave the Today programme. You are about to I leave the no Today programme. I have no more intention of retiring, Matt, than you. And I suspect you're a wee bit younger than me. Do you really want to retire from the Today programme? Do I want to leave the Today Do you Today want to leave program? the Today programme? Well, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't. Yes, I do. Well, well no, I... No. Look, you, you know you're going to get this answer. I'm, I, am, I am absolutely... I hate the idea of leaving the Today programme. Of course I do. I've loved it for 30, nearly 33 years. It's been... My, it's been my life, a very, very large part of my life. So I'm, I, it took me an awfully long time to summon up the nerve, actually to say to the big boss, I'm going to go when I'm going to go in September. Um, and, and, and even as I was doing it, I was saying, no, don't do it. 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 So no, I hate the idea. Equally, um, I, I, I want there to be another life. It's been my life. I mean, it does dominate. Not just doing the program. Doing the program is great fun from start to finish, and I love every minute of it. But if you're presenting the Today program, you've got to know, well, you mentioned this right at the start of our discussion, you've got to know what is going on in the world properly. And you can't, you can't try to wing it. I mean, there was one of the very famous occasion when Margaret Thatcher rang me up out of the blue when she was Prime Minister, peak of a power, you know, you've, you've heard the story, 25 to, uh, 20 to 7 in the morning, and it quite literally rang for me, probably through to Mr Humphreys, and, and they did, and, and we have. Now, if that happens, it doesn't happen very often, I admit, but, but if that happens, you've got to be able to know enough to talk to the Prime Minister for, for the next 20 minutes and be reasonably well informed. So you're always reading the papers, every single day you're reading all the papers and keeping in touch with everything that happens. And of course you're and having, that ties you, you're having you know, to get up incredibly Early. How, do you, do, how do you deal sleep. with the lack well, of sleep? And, and also, well, what, what sort of toll does it take on, on, on the rest of your life? Because well, I've been presenting overnights on LBC for over two and a half years. Mm, well, and I can you tell you, it is mm. damn challenging, not just for me. Worse doing an overnight, well. though, because I go see you outside, I, I go to bed early, it's the simple. And I'm in bed by half past eight. Every night before I every night, yeah, or, or just yeah. before yeah. the program. No, 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 no. Before the program, I mean. Uh, well, mind you, every other night when I'm not doing the program, by the time ten o'clock comes round, um, I'm uh, pretty knackered. So dinner parties at the Humphreys household end quite early, do they? Uh, what parties? What was that word again? <laughs> no, I can uh, see all sorts of impressive uh, cooking utensils to my right. Uh, yes, yes, I, I quite like cooking. But the sleep uh, you cope with, the lack of what time do you get up in the morning? Uh, half past three. And you're in by four o'clock. And you won't miss that. Um, I don't know is the short I mean, at the moment, this morning I did not do the programme, but I woke up at half past five. And that's sort of fairly normal. I wake up. It drives my partner nuts when, you know. We're, um, well, no, actually, that's not fair. It doesn't drive her nuts. She's, she's kind of got used to it. Yeah. Um, but um, I don't know how I'm going to cope. Are you excited? <laughs> Yes, I am, because there's lots of things I want to do. Will you miss the platform? Uh, well, that's a very good question. Probably, 
Yes, but, I will. No, it would be. It would. Be, yes, I will miss the platform. I mean, but you'll but have it, a different type of platform uh, because well, suddenly you'll be able to say what you really well, think. Well, you've stole the very words from that. Exactly. I don't, in a sense, have a platform. I mean, people, people who in, I'm quite sure that people who are generous enough to invite me to speak to them or whatever are massively disappointed because I don't tell them what I think about an awful lot of things in future. Well, when you I, did once allegedly say that all politicians were liars and, uh, and, and laid into Brown and Blair, as a, you got into a as, bit of trouble as, as a response journalist, Matt, um, who has done his homework, you will know that I said no such thing. That is a complete fiction. For You've which, got to change your Wikipedia which, entry because it still which, says oh, it. Who cares about Wikipedia? <laughs> um, well, if Wikipedia cared to do their work, they'd have uh, discovered that that was not the case. And indeed, the Times, which reported the scurrilous garbage, um, did apologise for it. Whereas what um, you said to me about the BBC's attitude and, to the EU in the Radio Times was correct, wasn't and it? And incidentally, the creep who was behind leaking that particular discussion paid £10,000 to my charity <laughs> soon afterwards. So I think we <laughs> well, can... I'm glad we've got that cleared put, up. Put, put that to rest. It was, yes. it was absolute rubbish. Was I'm, sure, absolute I'm rubbish. sure whoever is listening to this will update your Wikipedia entry oh, accordingly. Sure they will. Yeah, right. This is assuming and, I've summarised your Wikipedia entry successfully. Will well, yes. I don't know. I never look at Wikipedia. I have no idea what it says about me. Just finally, would you have done all this? Would you have given up what you've given up, but also worked as hard as you've worked for the past 30 odd years at today, but for, for longer as well? I've been a journalist for six. Indeed, but for those 30 years, 33 years nearly, you've been at at the Today programme. And you have, along with your work at Mastermind, of course, which we haven't mentioned, been paid handsomely. I'm not saying unfairly, handsomely. I'm not saying against the market rate. Would you have done it without being paid so handsomely? Yes, of course I would. (laughs) So how does that work when you're negotiating a contract when they must know that you do do it anyway? And and you, you 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 won't believe this. I did not ask for a pay rise in in my time on the BBC. Um, I've never gone in saying, I want more money. Um, I've been immensely fortunate in the sense that when I was, I was earning for the first, whatever, X number of years, I was earning whatever it was, 30 grand or whatever for being a foreign correspondent. And then my boss said, you know, uh, uh, when uh, when I started doing the nine o'clock news, he said, you ought to go freelance because we'd be able to pay you much more money. And I said, oh, all right then. So I did, and they paid me much more money. And then when I went on that, they, they paid me more money. And then I started doing a column for the Sunday Times, and they stopped doing, or people like me doing columns for newspapers. And uh, and I stopped doing that, but they paid me, they, they compensated me for that. So one way and the other, and I've done lots of other stuff as well, like on the record, I got paid extra for doing that, obviously. And, I, and you have well, taken a pay cut, of course, haven't I've you? I've taken three pay cuts, right. yeah, and they were all... But quite a sizable one recently. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've cut my pay in so about That half. sort of answers the question, I've isn't cut it? my pay in about half, yeah. <laughs> but, but bear in mind, this is hardly a sob story, because for many, many years, I was earning a great deal of money. John Humphreys, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Matt. This week's episode of the How To Academy podcast starred John Humphreys and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. Visit us live in London for talks, festivals, conferences, and debates with the men and women making the news or online, where you'll find a treasure trove of podcasts and films starring the thought leaders of today and of tomorrow. Join us next week when Hannah McInnes meets the philanthropist Melinda Gates. Thanks for listening.